You're listening to the Historical Bookworm Show. For lovers of history and readers of inspirational fiction, join your hosts, Kylie and Darcy, for author interviews, a pinch of the past, and special bookworm reviews. Hi, this is Kylie Woodley. And Darcy Fournier. Roxanne C. won a copy of A Daughter's Courage by Misty M. Beller. Uh, the Secrets of Emberly giveaway ends November 7th at midnight. And our giveaway for Caesar's Lord by Brian Litfin ends the 12th of November. So if you want to enter these giveaways, go to our website, historicalbookworm.com. Just click on the giveaways tab and you can find the information and how to enter there. For today's episode... I, Darcy, was actually out of town when Kylie interviewed Amy Lynn Green about her latest release, The Blackout Book Club. But I'm here for our Pinch of the Past, which features jobs that barely kept people out of the poorhouse. Our bookworm review takes a peek at Come Down Somewhere by Jennifer L. Wright. Today's guest is a lifelong lover of books, history, and library cards. She worked in publishing for six years before writing her first historical fiction novel based on the World War II home front in Minnesota, the state where she lives, works, and survives long winters. She has taught classes on marketing at writers' conferences and regularly encourages established and aspiring authors in their publication journeys. In her novels and her daily life, she loves exploring the intersection of faith and fiction and searches for answers to present-day questions by looking to the past. Amy Lynn Green, welcome to the Historical Bookworm Show. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk history and books. Yes, and I'm so excited to have you join me again. We normally have Darcy with us. However, she is away on just a family trip. We'll miss her and pray for traveling mercies. So in September of 2021, we were talking about your novel, The Lines Between Us. And today we'll be looking at your latest novel of the World War II home front. But before we get into that, I've been seeing a lot of people on social media excited about fall coming. They're bringing out their pumpkin spice as early as possible and so forth. Are you are you an autumn person or do you hold on to summer as long as you can? I love fall. I love everything about it. Summer is great, but once you get to August, you start to think to yourself, I could be outside with a cool breeze and apple cider <laughs> instead of sweating right now. And autumn is just a lot more exciting for that. So can't wait for pumpkin patches and crisp leaves and wearing sweaters again. Yes. And I love the pictures we take in autumn, all the family photos with the different colored leaves. And when we go to the pumpkin patch and the corn maze, it's just so much fun. And really the beginning of our holiday season as a whole, I think. So I think people who live in a place where we get something different for fall kind of have the edge here. I grew up in Indiana and live in Minnesota now. So it may not be as fun if you're in, say, Florida or Arizona or something like that, where it doesn't feel much of a change. But give me autumn any day. 
Me too. So you mentioned something fun on your website that if you lived in the 1940s, you'd be daydreaming about creating a radio drama. What sparked your interest in radio drama? And if you had one, what would yours be about? Oh, yeah. I absolutely would have been interested in that as a career if I had been in the golden era of radio, just because radio is carried mostly by dialogue, and that's my favorite thing to write. So that's one reason. And I also remembered a fond memory from childhood, which is we had, to, we had instead of a science fair at my school, we had an education fair where you could choose a different discipline, science, art, writing, and history and do some sort of a project on that. So obviously every year I picked writing, because why not? And my very first project was a radio drama that was like a detective radio drama. It was terrible. Like (laughs) nine-year-old me was having a great time and it is a joy to read because it's so bad and so funny. But lots of great memories from that. And I put in little sound effects and all the cliches of the genre are there. And if I had been doing it on purpose as a parody, it would have been really funny. But I was totally earnest. (laughs) Oh, that's so precious, though. I teach second graders. And last year, I was so proud of them. They wrote their own stories and made books. And there are websites and different things. You can, these kids can actually like, write books and have them printed and their parents can buy a copy and whatnot. But that would be so fun to have them do like a, like an actual drama with some of the stories. I might look into that. I love that. That's so fun. Yeah. Speaking of stories, what would you say that your favorite classic novel is? Ooh, hitting me with the hard questions, huh? There are so many, and I like them all for different reasons. So I'm just going to give you my first favorite, um, which is Anne of Green Gables, because I wanted to be Anne Shirley so (laughs) badly as a kid. Uh And she was just everything I wanted to be, imaginative and spunky and using vocabulary words that were way too old for her age. And (laughs) I actually decked a kid in the head with my lunchbox in second grade right after seeing the movie version because I thought he was making fun of me. And I thought, if Anne can do this to Gilbert, I can completely get away with this. (laughs) We didn't end up getting married, though, so it's not as cute as it was in Anne of Green Gables. Uh, that's real life for you. Yeah, I really like Anne. And she was so, oh, she was so brilliant in intelligence. It was so neat to see her in the beginning of the story, just with so much against her, yet such a vibrant individual and knowing that she had so much potential while the world around her was just against her and underestimating her, except for Matthew. Right, Matthew. <laughs> what a gem. Oh, I know. I love how she's a strong female character in a very different sense of the word than you usually think of that and how her unique gifts and talents are what make her a compelling female character. Yes, yes, that's a good point. I think we see a wide variety of strong female characters today. And I just love exploring those. I just, I really do. But it's so neat to see someone like Anne, especially in that day and age, just living with the social norms that that she lived with. Yet she was so fierce and so independent. 
So is there anything especially interesting that you haven't covered in other interviews that you could share with us? Or perhaps there's something that God's laid on your heart that you'd like to share with your readers? Yeah, I think one aspect of this story, the Blackout Book Club that we're going to be talking about is I wrote it or at least I started planning it during a time of lockdown and there was it was very hard for people to be with each other and so one of the themes in the book is community and each of the four women have different reasons that they aren't able to be as open with others as they want to be and they are set apart at the beginning of the story and as the story progresses they are able to overcome those obstacles and find friendship and connection with each other and so I guess I just hope that readers walk away from the book thinking about now that we can gather together again, what does it look like to pursue authentic community with other people and how can we love others well and seek to be loved in return? Because I think that's something that's really critical and especially for people of faith in the Christian community, because it's something that I think the world desperately needs, especially right now. And we have the ability to have that authentic community. And it's something that should draw people to us in a way that's very attractive when culturally some people are opposed to ideas of Christianity, but they should always be able to see our love for each other and have that be something that is compelling. Yeah, I really like that. Just how I know sometimes things like generational divides or cultural divides and class divides kind of not pull us apart, but just I think you don't always automatically step outside of your comfort zone to talk to someone who maybe looks different or sounds different than you do. But coming out of everything that we've just recently been through and having so much time at home and so much, so little time out in the supermarket and having picnics and just going out to, to, oh goodness, amusement parks and whatnot, the theater. We can definitely count our blessings and take advantage of those opportunities. Absolutely. All right. So let's take a moment to talk about your latest release, The Blackout Book Club. Now I have the back cover copy pulled up here. So I'm going to go ahead and read that for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with Amy's new book. An impulsive promise to her brother before he goes off to the European front puts Avis Montgomery in the unlikely position of head librarian in small town Maine. Though she's never been much of a reader, when wartime needs threaten to close the library, she invents a book club to keep its doors open. The women she convinces to attend the first meeting couldn't be more different. A wealthy spinster determined to aid in the war effort, an exhausted mother looking for a fresh start, and a determined young war worker. At first, the struggles of the home front are all the club members have in common, but over time, the books they choose become more than an escape from the hardships of life and the fear of the U-boat battles that rage just past their shores. As the women face personal challenges and band together in the face of danger, they find they share more in common with each other than they think. But when growing friendships are tested by secrets of the past and present, they must decide whether depending on each other is worth the cost. Just reading this, 
I automatically get the feeling that Avis and her brother must have had a really special connection to the library if he made her promise to keep it open. Yeah, I had a lot of fun with that as a reader who grew up basically living in the library as a child. It's actually Avis's brother, Anthony, who is the one who loves books and came back to his small town to work at the library that he grew up going to as a child. And there's a fun flashback scene that I got to include with him as a little boy in the library. And I just, Anthony is one of the characters who isn't on the screen a lot because he's over fighting in the war, who I just, I would be best friends with. I can tell even from the little bit that I got to include of him. Avis, the fun thing about her is that she actually doesn't like reading books at all. At the start of the story, her brother is always teasing her about how the only thing she reads are her magazines to get recipe ideas and things like that. But she has a very fierce love for her brother who loves the library. So... It's more for his sake at the beginning of the story that she wants to keep it open because he said, as soon as I come back from the war, this is the first place I want to go. And it means so much to me. And she has a great love for him. And eventually, as the story goes along, she comes to appreciate books and reading and the library for it for her own reasons, but started out just as a way to honor and care for her brother. Oh, wow. That's so wonderful to see how it's just the genuine care and relationship that prompts this really service, which a service to the entire community and then just having that come full circle. I sure hope he he makes it home from the war and gets to go to the library. I guess you'd have to read the book to find Mm -hmm. out. Yeah, I guess you will. (laughs) But yeah, I actually, there was a scene that I had to cut for length reasons that had Anthony as a little boy from the book that Avis and Anthony's parents often fought and he ran away to the library and was found there the next morning. Um, So it's a place that he, he associates books with safety and that's something that I hope lots of readers can relate with of one of one of the places in their life that is dear to them is probably a place with lots of books. Yeah, a place of refuge. Very neat. Now, how did you develop the four ladies who form the book club? And do you have a favorite? (laughs) That's a great question. So I think I actually, this is one of the first things that I did in the writing process. So I did a little bit of history background because the book is set in Maine. And during the early days of the war, when ships were being shot down by U-boats in the Atlantic. So I did a little bit of the history that's going to go into the story. And then after that, I thought, okay, who are the characters I want to tell this story? And I knew I wanted to write about this small association library, so not a public library, one that an individual owns, and the fact that it was going to be shut down. So I started with the librarian, who is Avis, who doesn't like books, and then the woman who owned the library because it was a gift to the town from her wealthy father. And thought, what could make these two women come into conflict? Louise Cavendish is the owner of the library. And throughout the story, which I can't give away too much because of spoilers, there you find out there are reasons why she is perfectly happy to shut the library down and the memories that it holds for her are not all good ones, unlike the rest of the people in the town. 
So I started with those two. And from then I thought, who are going to be the first few people who come to this book club? So the librarian in the early chapters says, all right, I've got to save the library. I'm going to come up with this essential book club that's going to keep people busy during blackout hours. Louise Cavendish loves anything to do with the war effort. This will definitely persuade her to keep it open. And I thought, what if I have an Italian-American woman who really has escaped from her sometimes hard reality through fiction? And she actually likes books because, remember, the other two characters we have start out not really liking books at all. So I wanted at least one person who I could relate to in a love of books. And uh, from there, I thought, what's another interesting reason someone could come to a book club besides the fact that they just enjoy discussing books? And so that's where my character of Ginny came up, because my husband said, well, what if somebody comes for the snacks? <laughs> and so Ginny loves like some fluffy romance type books, but she hasn't ever, she's not really that interested in the literary classics that they're reading for the club. But Avis happens to be a really good baker and she starts out just coming to spend time with people and eat food. <laughs> <laughs> so as far as motivations to join a book club... Ginny was definitely the most fun. And many of her scenes are just very fun because she's the youngest book club member. She has a fun sense of humor. And I really enjoyed writing her scenes. I can't say that I have a favorite overall because that feels like picking a favorite child. But her scenes were by far the easiest to write and definitely the ones where I got to use a sense of humor in the chapters. Oh, fun. Now, is Jenny the exhausted mother then? Uh, Martina is. Oh, okay. And so Jenny is a war worker? Mm -hmm. Yep. Hmm. I learned a lot about the Rosie the Riveters who worked in different defense plants and got to use, she's just in town for the job. So she's a stranger in town and the connections that she makes in the time that she's there. It was just a delight to write. Oh, neat. Yeah, that sounds, oh, I'll bet they had so much fun. I'm wanting to go out and join a book group now. Right? <laughs> Not that I have the time, but oh, that would be fun. I wouldn't just go for the snacks. <laughs> but snacks are a plus. Yeah. I am in a small little book club. We're going through the Chronicles of Narnia right now. Oh, wow. It's a delight. Mm -hmm. But also there are snacks. So real life. That's awesome. So World War II is so vast. There's always something new to learn when you're looking into the history of World War II. As you were researching for this story, did you run across something interesting or unexpected that you can share with us? Ooh, I'm going to give you two. One that made it into the book and one that didn't make it into the book because it wasn't actually relevant, but I thought it was really fun. But history thread that did go into the book was about the hooligan navy which was the nickname given to a group of civilians who petitioned the coast guard to say hey you guys are completely overwhelmed u-boats are going crazy sinking things in the atlantic and we're not doing a great job of keeping up with them why don't you let a group of us civilians who have these private yachts and other boats and we can patrol the coast and just radio in if we see a U-boat. And it's crazy that they actually let people do this. They gave them like deck guns and depth charges and just these civilians that were out there trying to do what they could to help. 
And so I got to include Avis's husband ends up a part of this group. And I got to include lots of the crazy real life hijinks that these crews got into in their encounters with U-boats on the Atlantic. So that was something that I had no idea happened and was just really fun to research. And what was the other one? The other one that I didn't get to use is... So I mentioned that Martina was my Italian-American character, and she's originally from Boston. When I was looking up Italian-Americans during the war and the prejudice that they faced, I came across this fun little story, and it took place after the dates of my book, so I couldn't use it. Um, So we're not spoiling anything on the plus side. (laughs) But Italy surrendered before Germany, right? So in the time in between, there was a group of Italian prisoners of war in Boston who said, hey, we're not at war with you guys anymore. Why don't we teach you everything that we know about U-boats? Because we commanded German-made U-boats during the war, and this will give you critical information that you can use to evade the German U-boat system. So they trained American troops and gave them all of the secrets and all of the information about how the U-boats were made and what technology they were equipped with. And they all ended up marrying women in Boston, Italian-American women, and became becoming U.S. citizens, which is just crazy to me. And I just Someone should write that story because I'm <laughs> sure the cute romance possibilities are endless. So that's my fun fact that I couldn't use at all, but I thought was really interesting. That would make a really amazing story. And it seems like World War II stories are kicking off again. I know I really enjoyed reading some recently. The Hooligan Navy, that kind of reminds me of that movie, The Finest Hour with Chris Pine. Have you ever seen that? I did. I actually watched it in the middle of writing this and it was really well done in the sense that it showed you the tension that you would have in a short period of time on the ocean and all of the dangers that are very different from the normal World War II battles that we picture, right? That's not your typical war movie, but I really liked it for that reason. Yeah. Yeah. It gives you, it definitely gives you a unique perspective. So Amy, what kind of riderly things do you have coming up in the future? Well, right now I am frantically working toward my deadline at the end of October for a fourth book that currently doesn't have a title. So I'm just calling it my USO story because it is about the group of performers that go overseas, in this case to Morocco and Algeria, to entertain the U.S. troops who are there. So a lot of people know of stories like famous Hollywood stars like Bob Hope and Marlene Dietrich and others who went over with the USO to perform, but there were also hundreds of no-name kind of people, and those are the characters of my story. It's the adventures that they get into overseas. It's the first time I start the story in America, and then we go over to Africa, which is the first time I have an internationally set story. So it's been a challenge for that reason, but also just the wealth of things that I've learned is astonishing to me and fun details about music and the performance life and all of the rules that the performers had to follow has been really fun to work into the context of a fiction story. I read recently, or maybe I saw online that Leslie Howard, who is Ashley Wilkes in Gone with the Wind, 
he was British, but when World War II broke out that he like went abroad doing different things like that to raise money. And I don't know if he actually performed for the soldiers, but like selling bonds and whatnot, he left Hollywood to do that. I thought that was really neat. Yeah, there were a lot of people in Hollywood who got involved in different ways. Lots of potential for there, there have been some fun inclusions of real life people that I've been able to slip into the book. Oh, that's always fun. Oh, cool. I can't wait to read that. <laughs> so listeners, Amy has been so gracious to offer a copy of the Blackout Book Club as a for our giveaway. And to enter to win, just go to our website, historicalbookworm.com, and you can click on the giveaway tab. We'll also have the link to the giveaway in the show notes for this episode. And Amy, where can our listeners learn more about you? Well, I'm present on Facebook on Amy Lynn Green is my name there. And on Instagram, it's Amy Green Books. And I also have a newsletter that I send out four to five times a year that has kind of book news, but also just fun history facts and literary gift items and all sorts of fun and entertaining things, which you can sign up for on my website, amygreenbooks.com. All right. Well, thank you for coming on the show. It's been a delight chatting with you. Yeah. Thank you so much for asking such great questions. And it's been fun to talk about books. Now for a pinch of the past. Anyone slightly familiar with British and American history has heard of the infamous poorhouse or workhouse. These municipal institutions generally provided the barest possible food and shelter to the elderly, disabled, and very poor in exchange for whatever work the person could provide. They were designed to make poverty as unbearable as possible in an effort to keep people working rather than relying on the poorhouse. So today we look at a few jobs people turn to as a last resort to keep themselves out of the poorhouse. Okay. See, I read Lady Jane Disappears, which was Joanna Davison Politano's debut novel. And the main female character in that book, she wasn't, she was raised in debtor's prison. So not like the poor house, but somewhere, I think the same realm there, but mm -hmm. it was really interesting. It is when you get into it. And of course, Charles Dickens wrote a lot about mm. how people were living, trying to keep out of the poorhouse and things like that. The conditions were really rough, which is shown when you start looking at the jobs that people were willing to do to keep themselves out of the poorhouse. Mm. Mm -hmm. The first one we're looking at is slop shop sewing and shoe binding. Okay, what's a slop shop? A slop shop sold ready-made clothing. They were usually in port towns because sailors were constantly arriving in town, staying only a day or two, and they didn't have the time or the money for tailored clothes. So shops made these ready-made slops, which was the term for the clothing that sailors wore. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it sounds terrible. <laughs> it does. It does sound terrible. But they were fairly decent clothes for this working class. In the 1700s in America, poor widows with young children couldn't exactly leave their little rooms where they lived to go work. So the clothing shops hired them to sew garment pieces together at home. They worked for extremely low pay for 16 hours a day, every day, sewing these pieces together. And then the garments were returned to the shops, finished up by a pro professional and sold cheaply. 
Okay. Wow. That'd be hard. I remember just trying to like study because I was in, I was taking classes when my kids were babies and yeah, it was not easy. I know you think they're working full time on this job and they're doing it at home so that they can keep an eye on their children, but it had to be difficult to juggle that. Yeah, with nursing, cooking, cleaning, trying to just keep them from not fighting because little kiddos, they just get so restless. Yeah, that would be tough. They also did shoes in a similar way. The leather pieces were cut for the uppers of the shoes and sent to the widows to be sewn together. And then a professional would add the soles back at the shop. The wage for both slop shop sewing and shoe binding was so low that most widows couldn't really survive on their earnings, but it might keep them out of the poorhouse long enough for the children to reach earning age. Yeah. And what was the earning age, I wonder? As young as three, depending on the job, but by five or six, they were definitely considered wage earners of the family and you were relying on their income. Mm, Yeah. Children as young as four or five could be taught to scavenge, which was basically the 18th century version of a recycling program. Trash in the cities was dumped in the streets, often in large piles on the corners, and cats, dogs, and pigs that ran loose would just root through the trash to find scraps of food. But people of all ages would sort through this refuse looking for things like scraps of cloth that could be sold to the paper makers, or bits of metal that a metalsmith might melt down to make little tin soldiers, or something like that. They would get pieces of bone for the bakers, actually. The bakers sometimes, when wheat prices went up, supplemented flour with bone flour. So they would take these bones and boil them down, bleach them white, grind them up, and use it as a filler in their bread. And also the scraps of leather people could find. And a cobbler would patch these together to make shoes that they sold to poor people. They didn't look good, and they were made of used leather, so they, could be, they were sold cheaply. So there were a lot of things that could be resold if you knew what to look for, and it earned a little something that might contribute to the family income or keep a person off the streets at night. Men, women, and children worked at scavenging, actually. It could be a full-time job. Oh, wow. Yes. Now, our last one is one that actually sounds funny. During the 1700s, gray squirrels and flying squirrels were a popular pet for wealthy American children. So supplying them was actually a decent paying job. Boys and young men climbed trees in the woods and collected baby gray squirrels right out of their nests and then sold them in the marketplace. That's awesome. So instead of having like a kitten or a puppy, you have a squirrel. Squirrel, exactly. They were really popular. Benjamin Franklin, while visiting England, actually wrote back to his wife in America and asked her to buy some baby squirrels and ship them to him so that he could give them as gifts to the children of the family who was hosting him. Aw, that's neat. So other than the fact that small teeth probably bit your fingers with some regularity, this job had just one drawback. It was seasonal. So twice a year, you could collect baby squirrels, but the rest of the time you'd need a fallback. Mm-hmm. These three jobs just scratched the surface of the low-paying and often disgusting jobs people undertook to make ends meet. Kind of gives me a new appreciation for my less than exciting office job. Time for our bookworm review. Come Down Somewhere by Jennifer L. Wright. 16-year-old Olive Alexander has lived on a ranch in the Jornada del Muerto region of southern New Mexico her entire life. But when World War II begins, the government seizes her family's land for the construction of a new top-secret army post. While her mother remains behind, Olive is forced to live in nearby Alamogordo with her grandmother and find a place in a new school. 
When Joe Hawthorne crosses her path, Olive sees a chance for friendship, until she learns that Joe's father is the army sergeant who now occupies her beloved ranch. Already angry about her new reality, Olive pushes Joe away, but as she struggles to make sense of her grandmother's lapses into the past and increasingly unsettling hints about what's happening at the ranch, she slowly warms to Joe's winsome faith and steady attempts at friendship, until one devastating day when the sky explodes around them and their lives are torn apart. Seven years later, Joe returns to Alamogordo, still angry and wounded by the betrayals of that fateful day. Determined to put the past behind her once and for all, Joe hunts for answers and begins to realize the truth may be far more complicated than she believed, leading her on a desperate search to find her friend before it's too late. Today's Bookworm Review is brought to you by Beth of the Bookworm Review team. She says that one thing that never fails to get my attention is a story set during a time or a situation in history that is almost entirely new to me. Come Down Somewhere is a coming-of-age tale, a story of friendship, and on a broader scale, an homage to what was done unwittingly when the Trinity nuclear bomb was tested in southern New Mexico. Wright doesn't attempt to place blame merely tells a story that must be told, thereby paying respect to them and what was done to their home. Through the modern eyes, it's a no-brainer that this testing is problematic, but to the scientists of the time, this is such a new technology that no one really understands the implication outside of the impact zone. Into this aftermath, Wright bravely sets her story of a friendship torn apart. Wright's description of the setting is impeccable, I could practically feel the sweat gliding down my back as Joe walked along the streets of Alamogordo. The plot moves along steadily, secrecy abounds, and there is even a bit of suspense before the story reaches its poignant end. The faith element is woven organically throughout, pointing readers to Christ in a way that is never heavy-handed or preachy. I found myself in tears over the reminder that nothing and no one is ever so far gone that redemption cannot reach them. If you're in the mood for a bold, eye-opening, and impactful coming-of-age tale on true events in history, one that honors and validates those impacted, Come Down Somewhere should be your next read. So Darcy, how are you doing today? I am doing quite well in spite of some pretty serious sleep loss last night, but it was totally worth it. There was not a full moon, but a very bright moon last night, and the tide was low at exactly midnight. So my sister and I went with our parents for a moonlight stroll on the beach, and it was absolutely amazing. The weather was perfect, and the moonlight was so bright, it was casting shadows. It was just beautiful. Aww, that does sound lovely. And now you have some very exciting news from this week. Yes. So I have a a short story that was published called The Prince or the Soldier. So that's been exciting just having that out there and hopefully people can read it and enjoy it. You can find it at White Crown Publishing backslash the dash prince dash the dash soldier (laughs) or just google it because that would be easier but it was really fun to write I had been researching Prince Edward and so I just wrote up the story and submitted it and yeah Rosanna White emailed me back and was like hey let's go with it so that is so much fun 
And with your research on Prince Edward, he actually sort of ties into one of the novels you're working on now, right? Yes, he does. I was researching a novel that I have a beautiful proposal for that I'm shopping around. And there's a little bit of mystery surrounding him. The story's in 1900, so he had already died. Queen Victoria was reigning at the time. But yeah, so it was a lot of fun. And I just had that story idea. And I didn't want to write a whole novel. Obviously, I was already writing a novel. So I put together the short story. Nice, nice. So yes, be sure to check that one out. You've been listening to the Historical Bookworm Show, where history meets fiction. For more information, find us at historicalbookworm.com.